get started in prayer. Father, thanks for a gorgeous day out and for allowing us to be here to study your word. I pray that now you would teach us in this time together. Thank you for this opportunity to be together and to open your word in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are going to continue our discussion on upper criticism or higher criticism as it's called. And um, just to show that I put myself through the same torture that you all do, I got some specials off, I think it's Discovery Channel. There are three of them, one of them on the Exodus, one of them on the Flood, and one of them on Sodom and Gomorrah. And I found out that Sodom and Gomorrah really didn't happen the way the Bible said it happened. Um, it didn't happen at the time the Bible said it happened. And that they're clueless as to why God really destroyed Sodom. Other than, obviously, it was lack of hospitality, which is a bad thing. All right, That shows the, uh, the influence of the Metropolitan Church and the pro-gay, pro-homosexual agenda. Um, I also found out the Exodus really didn't happen when it happened or where we thought it might have happened. And it wasn't quite as miraculous because... Uh, Actually, you know, the burning bush was by a volcanic vent and um, Mount Sinai is really a volcano in Saudi Arabia. So the smoking there, that, that explains the smoking. And uh, so I found that out. And then I also found out about the flood, that it really didn't happen when we said it happened. It was not a global flood, of course, because there's absolutely no evidence anywhere on the globe of a global flood. It's just not there. Um, so, I mean, all right, so I'm, I'm sort of tongue-in-cheek here, but that's sort of the way this thing works, all right? And that's when you bring in these concepts of higher criticism to the Bible. What is higher criticism? Higher and lower criticism are two branches. And when we talk about criticism, we're not talking necessarily negative kind of thing. We're talking about being discerning, to, to look at critically. And uh, lower criticism has to do with things of the text. What words go where in the text? Is that the right letter? Is that the right word? has things to do with the transmission of the manuscripts. And we'll talk about that later. Higher criticism has to do with all the other stuff. It has to do with the unity of the book, the history of the book, the authorship, the time of its writing. Um, all of those kind of things have to do with higher criticism. All right? And that's really where a lot of the History Channel shines, is they really do that. And I am watching a special now from the History Channel on the lost books, or the rejected books of the Bible. I sort of got partway through that. And I'm going to find out what they think is uh, the reason we rejected a lot of the non-canonical books. So I'll, I'll report on that next week. But right now I went through these three. And uh, it, what, it, what it does is they, they all follow the same kind of pattern. All right? And we talked a little bit about this uh, criticism. And when you talk about criticism, there are various branches of this that keep popping their head up. One branch is the redaction criticism. The idea there is that the Bible is compiled. That's the operative concept. Think of it as, as a compilation. So the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they're not original works. Moses did not sit down and write them. Rather, somebody, probably around the 7th or 8th century B.C., edited them. They took together a bunch of disparate kind of records and they sort of did a, an edit job and tried to make them all fit together in sort of a nice flowing story. And that's where we get our book, the, the books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. When it comes to the gospel writers, 
um, they did the same thing. They edited Matthew. Probably wasn't written by Matthew. It was probably written by some other guy who just put his name of Matthew on there. Um, but he edited it together. So what you have in the Bible now is not a collection of original works. You have a collection of edited works. Isaiah, this is the big thing. I remember when I first took a religion class and I, the professor was talking about second Isaiah. And I was scratching my head saying, what do you mean second Isaiah? I mean, I know there's an Isaiah in the Bible. What's second Isaiah? Oh, well, second Isaiah is chapters 40 through 60 of the book of Isaiah. And I said, well, why do you call it second Isaiah? Well, it was never written by Isaiah. We know that. It was written by some other guy. Much, long, much longer after Isaiah really wrote the first part. So you've got 1st Isaiah, which is the first 39 book, chapters. You've got 2nd Isaiah, which is chapters 40 through 60. And then you've got 3rd Isaiah, who's chapter 61 through 66. I said, where'd you get that? He said, oh, it's obvious. I mean, there's three several authors. All right, fine. Um, the whole point is, that's what they do to the Bible. They rip it apart, they tear it up, they shred it to pieces. You've got two Zacharias. Daniel obviously was not written by Daniel. There's no way anybody could have written that beforehand. Um, and they deny the authorship and the supernatural nature of the Bible. So you have to do that if you're, a, if you're a liberal pagan, right? God doesn't speak. There's no such thing as biblical prophecy. So anything that appears to be prophetic in the Bible is obviously either A written long after the events happened so as to not be prophecy but history, or B, was inserted at a later point by somebody else who wanted to make it look like there was prophecy. They do the same thing in the Gospels. Jesus Christ never said he was God. We know that. The early church put that back in there to make it sound like he said he was God so that they could lend credence to their theology. That's what you heard by what John MacArthur was talking about last week with the whole Jesus seminar. That's really the driving force behind those guys. To find the real historical Jesus, I remember going to a lecture at Oberlin College on the quest for the historical Jesus. I said, well, read the Gospels. No, we can't do that, obviously, because the Gospels are a product of the early church. They totally rewrote the entire history of Jesus to make it conform to their image of what they wanted Christ to be. So... Whatever Christ you find in the Bible is obviously not the real Jesus. It's the Jesus of the church. It's a created Jesus. It's a fictional figure. Now, there happened to actually be a guy named Jesus walking around, but, you know, we don't know what he is or really what he was like. Well, there's another special I'm watching on the History Channel on that, on who the real Jesus was. And obviously they're going to get all the wrong answers because if you deny the Bible, you deny everything. But the redaction critics, and this is a very, very common one here. They don't call it redaction, but that's really what it is. Is they see the Bible as edited. There's not original authorship in the Bible. Paul didn't really write the entire book. It was edited. It was compiled. It was, and it was changed over time. This is the big thing here. The idea of redaction is it was changed over the centuries. By the way, this is the driving force behind many cults who come along and say, well, we've got to understand that the Bible was uh, changed over a period of time. It was, we don't have the original text. In fact, it was altered. This is really what Mormonism says. Mormonism says we don't have the real original writings of Jesus. We have an edited version. And they got rid of all the doctrines they didn't like, which Mormonism has come along and said we will put back. All right, heretical doctrines that were never taught in the 
in the entire history of the church. Now, how do you how do you answer this a little bit with the redaction? How would you answer that? That the Bible's been edited over the centuries. How do you answer that? Well, through the canon, but what else? What other evidence do you have? Well, they were they were written over. I mean, they were erased. You know, you erased another work and wrote the Bible on it. But what do we have? We have a wide variety. Manuscripts. We have interpretation, but yeah, we're looking what. It's consistent. There's no evidence that we have manuscripts that were altered. There's no evidence. Well, you don't find anywhere until Joseph Smith came along. Now, they don't believe that, but that's true. You're right. No. And, and the thing is, we've got manuscripts that go back to the time of the apostles. And if nothing, you, can, you get the apostolic quotes from the early church fathers quoting scripture. And you find no alterations. You don't find... The point is, when somebody comes along and says, well, you've got to understand, you know, the Bible's been changed over the years, and how do we know that we got the original text? And all? That's a bit, that, they're speaking from absolute total ignorance. Because anybody who has any concept of textual history and understands the manuscript evidence that we have, that is a foolish statement, because there is no evidence that there was any alteration. The Luke we have is the Luke that Luke wrote. There is no alterations. There's no five or six different versions of Luke where we find things that have been added and taken out and changed and altered. They're just, it's just not there. So when people talk about this editing of the Bible and that, they're speaking from ignorance. There's no evidence that it was ever altered. We just don't have that. Form criticism is another one. Sometimes these go together and they're hard to separate out. But the idea of form criticism is it looks like the, the oral traditions and sources. This is, this is like, sort of like redaction criticism, but what it's trying to do is it's trying to find the different literary sources of the Bible. This is really applicable to the Gospels. This is really where it comes into play. And I talked about the Q document. Did anybody go out and look up the Q document? Oh, you have to do that. It's sort of fun to see what these guys have come up with. Go look up the Q document this fictitious document of the sayings of Jesus. See, what happens here when you come into the form criticism arena is you say, Matthew could not have written Matthew because we don't know who wrote it. Obviously, it wasn't the apostle of Jesus Christ. Some other guy wrote it. And, of course, if he was going to write it, he had to go somewhere to get his information. Right? So he had to go to all of these different sources and he compiled and edited a version of the gospel that we have as... Matthew. Mark did the same thing for Mark. Luke, the same thing for Luke. And how do we know that? Because we have three Gospels called the Synoptic that are a lot alike. I mean, you read Matthew, you read Mark, you read Luke. They all sort of follow the same basic storyline, right? Therefore, they had to copy from something that was common to all three of them. Well, the sayings of Jesus and then an oral tradition. 
The sayings of Jesus being collected sayings that he said over his lifetime. And they edited those in, you know, to make him like the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. They edited those in. And then there was an oral tradition of his life. Basically an oral tradition of his history. And uh, they used that. So you have all different kinds of spins on this. We'll look, about, look at that in a few minutes here. But uh, the idea there is that the original gospel authors were not original at all. They were just editors. The one that they say is direct from Q is Mark. Yeah, well, you got the primacy of Mark theory. And we'll talk about that. That's right. Um, some say Mark wrote his first and then Matthew copied from Mark and some other document. Luke copied from Mark and some other document. And then another guy came along. He wanted a PhD too. So he said, no, Matthew wrote first. Then Luke copied from Matthew. And another guy came along. He wanted a PhD. He said, no, Luke wrote first. And then, yeah, look, it's foolishness. It's silliness. It's idiocy. You don't need to follow that kind of reasoning. The gospel authors are original authors. So when we talk about higher criticism, we're really dealing with these kind of topics. Who wrote the book? Yeah. Who wrote the book? Um, did Matt, did Paul write Romans. And understand something here. If a book says that it was authored by a particular person, that's proof to these guys that that person did not write it. You understand the starting point? When it it says Paul and Sylvanus to the church at whatever, oh, well, obviously Paul and Sylvanus did not write that book. It was written by somebody else. But it says Paul and Sylvanus wrote the book. We know, but that says somebody just put that in there. We know that it's a fake. That's the starting point. You know, you, 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 look, you don't need to feel stupid as a Christian. You need to feel bad for these guys who are stupid. It says Paul wrote it. Paul wrote it. There's, what's so hard about that? It's funny how that's certainly the case, but they are, on the other hand, trying to make valid books that were written decades Yeah after somebody really lived and yet they put that person's name to that book and try to validate it, try to show how it is a true authorship by that named person. But it was centuries later. They they want to validate the uncanonical and they want to invalidate the canonical. And see, the the, the thinking behind that, what Sammy just said, you got to understand the thinking behind that. The thinking behind in the liberal mind, all right, the liberal thinking process is that all positions are valid positions. You understand that? Therefore, the Gospel of Judas is as valid technically a position and insight as the Gospel of Mark. Because everybody has a right to their own particular viewpoint. It just so happened that the church strong-armed, and that's how they would think about it, strong-armed Christians into accepting these 27 only. But in fact, there are valid other scriptures that we should be looking at, and possibly they're more accurate than the ones we have. Because see, everybody's allowed to have their opinion. And the greatest, the greatest crime to a liberal is to tell them they're wrong about anything. There is, but they don't care. They don't care. They don't care. They really don't. They don't care. 
That's why when the Gospel of Judas comes along, everybody's frothing at the mouth saying, Oh, we got a new spin on this guy named Judas. Good night. You know, where do they get that? Well, see, it's a valid position because they don't accept. Pardon? That's right. That's right. The greatest crime to a liberal, and I was talking to this to a friend of mine, you know, I, I'm glad I sort of got away from Oberlin College in a certain extent, certain way, because there you, you could believe anything except that you're right. You can't believe you're right. Well, if we're going to believe All right. we're going to expect an argument. We got expected. We, we have to but what's happening in, in today's society, see, and this is what this is what you find. Look, watch TV very carefully. All right. Liberals say, and I don't want to get on this too much, but liberals say they have an open mind, that they're they're open to other opinions, except the Christian position. See. See, why is it that I cannot stand up and say, you know, I really believe homosexuality is a bad thing. I'm not allowed to say that. But wait a minute. If, if you're a liberal and you, you're open-minded, right, and you allow different opinions and different... Well, why, isn't my, why is my viewpoint any worse than yours? Well, because it's the truth. It's the truth. They can't handle it. But because you're telling them something morally that they don't want to hear. All right? You're not allowed to do that. But it's a valid... Why isn't it not a valid... I mean, I remember when Gil Mickelson at Oberlin College was quoted in the Wall Street Journal about how nuclear families are the best environment to raise children. They wanted to run the guy out on a rail. They wanted his tenure revoked. They wanted him fired by the administration. All he did was just stay. You know, when I look at the, 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 the statistical data, the scientific data, it says that children who grow up with a mother and a father statistically are more well-adjusted than children who grow up in a homosexual home. That was unacceptable. He had to be fired. He had to be silenced. Gil Mylander. Well, no, Mylander. I'm sorry, Mickelson. I keep coming Mickelson. Gil Mylander. And I know Gil Mylander. He's a good guy. He's hardly a Christian. They're fighting. They're fighting. They're fighting against the core of what is right. Mm-hmm. Which is really interesting because if you try to argue anything that they stand up for, it's an easy disprove. Right. And, and you just got to understand that. Yeah, I expect it. And when History Channel says a bunch of blather, you can't get all worked up over it. Because that's just they're coming from, where they're coming from. Yeah. I'm sorry. It appears to really be rooted in the idea that there is no absolute truth. Absolutely. There's not. That's the only way they can defend their position and avoid being Yeah, and see, that's why when. Right. By making that very statement, they are making an absolute statement. Yeah. Which their absolute statement is there is no such thing as an absolute, but how do you know there's no such thing as an absolute? You're not allowed to make that kind of statement. They don't care. See. Yeah. Right. In, they are. They're pretty depressing to be around. 
Yeah. And, and the difficulty is, see, when they, when they see early Christianity, what they see is chaos. Theological, doctrinal chaos. And it just so happened that this set of doctrines that we have today are the ones that won out. But there were other equally valid possible doctrines that could have won out. And the church could have been totally different. That's how they view it. That's how they view things. It was. It was called Catholicism. Yeah. But they, they would talk about the Gnostics. Why were the Gnostics? Why were they wrong? They could have been right. I mean, that's their mentality. I'm just saying, this is how they think. Okay? So, don't get too worked up when you see this stuff. It, it, no, it's out there, but realize it's coming from ignorant men who deny the truth, who do not want absolutes. The code has even got huge gaps in it. It does. But we have a God who took care of things. We have a God who's sovereign, and therefore we know that what we have is God's word to us. It's God's truth. But... What you're going to find when you see these specials on TV, and it doesn't matter which channel it's on, they're all going to be questioning who the authorship. They're going to be denying the the unity is another big one here. Almost all of the books of the Bible are not seen as a unified whole. They're all seen as edited from multiple authors. You've got Isaiah 1, Isaiah 2, and Isaiah 3. Who are these guys? We don't know, but there are some guys that wrote and somebody compiled it together into a book we call Isaiah and ascribed it to Isaiah 1 when really there's two other guys that are authors of Scripture as well. Um, so what higher criticism does, it deals with these kind of issues. Authorship. Speaking of the Isaiah situation, the reason that chapters 40 onward do appear to be different from the first 39 is because Isaiah is its own replication in a sense of all 66 books of the Bible. And so from 40 forward, it is indeed more pointing towards the same stuff that's in the New Testament relative to, you know, yeah, it's just... And one, the other thing here, do you think Isaiah just sat down one day and wrote the entire book out? No, he had a life. He had a whole life where he wrote things. Now let me ask you a question. If you were, if you were to write a paper today and compare it to a paper maybe you wrote in college, how many authors would we say wrote those papers? Probably. At least two, because you write differently. You've got different vocabulary. You're using different words. You're writing from a different perspective. Well, you're older. All right, or the subject matter is different. Same thing in Zechariah. They have two authors in Zechariah. Well, you got to understand, Zechariah wrote over a long period of time. It's the same guy. It's just that there's different subject matter. They like to do this word game. You know, they say, "Well, we've got words used in the second part of Isaiah that's not used in the first part of Isaiah." Well, that's true, but there's a lot of words that are used in both parts of Isaiah that aren't used elsewhere in Scripture. You know, it doesn't. It's just that they have too much time on their hands. So they've got to come up with something like that. The same thing, they deny the pastoral epistles written by Paul. Why? Because it deals with concepts that are too advanced for Paul's time. Where do they get that? Pizza and beer. They make it up over pizza and beer at a pub some night. I don't know where they make it up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's too advanced. We'll throw it out. 
Obviously, it wasn't written by Paul. Um, when it comes to higher criticisms, for example, almost universally, um, modern scholars deny the accepted authors of Scripture. Almost universally, they do that. You pick up any liberal commentary on the Bible, and the first thing they do is they attack the authorship. Um, probably when it comes to authorship, for example, for Pauline, um, they would accept that probably Paul wrote Galatians and Ephesians, but the rest of them are up in the air. We have no idea who wrote the rest of Pauline, Paul's epistles. And we know it wasn't Paul, but it, 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 we don't know who it was. The Gospels, obviously never written by Luke, Matthew, Mark. No, John didn't write them. It was written by somebody else. Old Testament authors are completely unknown. Isaiah, we don't know who wrote Isaiah. We don't know who wrote Zechariah. Daniel was certainly not written by Daniel. It was written by somebody else. Nobody knows who wrote the first five books of the Bible, even though Christ said they were written by Moses. We know that that's not true. They, they just, they deny all of it. Um, when you're inerrantist, which we are, I hope, you're all in, believe in the biblical inerrancy. The Bible is accurate. If a book says it was written by Paul, it was written by Paul. It's not that tough, right? It's not that hard. And when you look at those books that were not, you know, where the author is not mentioned by name, from very early on, from like the first century on, they said Luke wrote Luke. All right, now, if the, all of everybody in the first century says Luke wrote Luke, then how can somebody in the 20th century say they were all wrong? Well, because they're smarter in the 20th century, obviously, than they were in the first. All right, it's irrelevant. We're smarter than them. All right? Um, I'm doing a lot of tongues. I'm telling, this is their thinking. I've been through it. I know it. I've been down that road. I know how they think. And one of the rules of canonization, one of the major rules, of course, we talk about this, is that you had to know who the author was, or at least be fairly certain as to who the author was before it was allowed in the canon. You didn't let, let just, you know, an, uh, an anonymous book in. You knew who the authors were. Or it didn't make it in. You had to make sure it was a prophet or an apostle or someone associated with an apostle and a prophet. Unity is another one. Liberal scholars almost universally buy into a redaction and form critical method. In other words, it's all edited. It's, all, it's an amalgamation of stories and, and sources. And somebody did a really good job of editing it all together. But no one was an original author. Um, one of the things mentioned by John last week was the Groff-Wellhausen theory. I'm going to just mention that. It's in the notes. We're not going to go through it. If you want to do that, you can. Um, but basically what the Graf-Wellhausen theory says is that the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, have at least four authors. We have a J author, an E author, a D author, and a P author. Called the JEPD theory. All right. How do you know who the J author is? Well, he liked the name Jehovah. So any passage in the, the Pentateuch where the name of God is Jehovah... That's the J author. And then the E author, like the name of God, Elohim. So anytime you see Elohim, that's the E author. So therefore, the E author wrote Genesis 1. The J author wrote Genesis 2. Because the name of God is different. The D author wrote Deuteronomy. And the P author put the priestly code in about all the sacrifices and all the different things. 
And somebody around 7th and 6th century B.C. took J and E and P and D and edited them together and out pops your Torah. Out pops Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they gave each other PhDs and they wrote on this for years and years and years. And it's almost to the point where this is just accepted gospel truth now. Alright? So a lot of times when you read... Like, for example, when you go to the History Channel, they talk about the creation. They talk about two accounts of creation, the two creation accounts. Well, the one creation account is the J author. The other creation account is the E author. There are actually two creation accounts that were edited together into one. Now, look, you don't need to stay up at night worrying about this. You don't need to lose sleep on this. This is just a bunch of liberals having at it. Because, see, to them it was impossible for a guy named Moses to actually sit down and write Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Because, after all, writing was unknown at that time. And he could not have written something like that. Yeah, that's just splitting it up. First 39 chapters, 40 through 60, and 61 through 66. That's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Isaiah. You got 1st and 2nd Zechariah. I know you didn't know that, but you got two Zechariahs. And the differences in writing. I mean, when you look at Isaiah, look, go home and read Isaiah in one sitting. And Isaiah 40 through 66 is quite a bit different than 1 through 39. So they had different authors. No. Same author, different time, different subject matter. See, Isaiah 1 through 39 says judgment is coming, you need to repent. Isaiah 40 says, okay, too late, judgment is going to come, but I'm going to talk about the comfort that's going to happen in the future. Same author, same person, same writer, just different subject matter, that's all. No, they don't. They assume it's a different author. They assume it's different authors. Yeah, they, they say there's three different authors. One lived in Palestine, one lived in Babylon, one lives who knows where. They write thesis papers on this, get PhDs over it. I'm trying to identify where Third Isaiah wrote. I'm not making it up. They do this kind of stuff. But all of them deny the unity of the Bible. However, as an errantist, an errantist, an errantist, I don't know how to pronounce that. Since the scriptures are verbally inspired, there's an inherent unity, right? And there's not only unity within a book, there's unity of all of the books. We see that. Because the Holy Spirit superintends that. But see, if you're a liberal, there's no such thing as the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit authored scriptures. Now, could an author have used different sources for some of his stuff? Luke did, right? Where do you think Luke came up with his um, Magnificat and, and all of that. He probably went and interviewed Mary. He probably talked to Mary. He talked to people. But he wrote the book. He wrote it. It wasn't edited by somebody else. He, he put it together. He may have compiled it from sources that he had, but he put it all together in one single compilation. Writing. Anybody does that. You write, you write a research paper, you go get what? 
sources. You, yeah, you do that. That's what Peter did. And uh, Peter, but Luke. And Luke said he did that. I mean, right in the front of Luke chapter 1, he says that he went out and did this. So we would expect him to do that. But when Matthew wrote, Matthew was a primary witness to the events. Did he need, did he need sources? No, he didn't. He could write from memory for the most part. John, same thing. Another thing here, some of these prophets ministered over decades. Isaiah ministered a long time. Over 40 years. And anybody, anybody that, that ministers over that long a period of time, they sound differently at the end than they did at the beginning. That's normal. That's part of it. Of course there is, because they're evolving. No, they are. They're evolving. They're evolving their ideas. See, that's how they see Scripture. Scripture is an evolutionary product, is what they see. Alright, let's look at the date. Liberal scholars almost universally post-date books to deal with problems of prophetic passages. Universally, this is a, this is a given. Um, probably one of the most abused books in the Bible is the book of Daniel, which obviously was not written in the 6th century B.C. It was really written about 158 B.C., during the time of the Maccabees. And how do you know that? Well, all the detailed prophecies in Daniel go up to the time of the Maccabees. Ah, so it was written at that time. That's their mentality. Obviously, nobody could have foretold future events like Daniel did. Alright, the Pentateuch was edited in its final form 620. Why? Well, the prophecies in it. They, you know, you gotta post-date it because there's no such thing as prophecy. To advance theology is, that's the other thing they like to do. Well, the theology in, in the Pentateuch is too advanced for Moses' time. The Jews had not yet figured out this monotheism kind of gig yet. So, you know, it had to come much later. Well, where do they get that? Pizza and beer. I don't know where they get it. Yeah, because, see, see, you're simple-minded. You're simple-minded. You actually believe this stuff. You're a simple person. You're, you're actually naive. You believe in Easter Bunny, probably. And Santa Claus. That's, that's their mentality. You know. And, um, you know, they like to make... The, They do. Because you're trying to, because you've got to come up with some explanation as to why it is there and why did it have such a large influence on modern culture. You've got to come up with some reason for that. You know, and it's better than digging ditches, so I'll do that. I'll, I'll make my life work. <laughs> I'm being a little facetious here, but look, you know, I've been down the road with these guys. I know how they think, and a lot of them, they just. You know, it's it's a curiosity to them. It's a curiosity. Yeah. No. My life, much less 
so much energy on something that I thought was so stupid and so wrong. Because, because you, you know, it's a heady thing to stand up and give lectures and be world-renowned as an expert on the historical Jesus when you deny the Gospels. Mm-hmm. I'm not making it up. That's... I know, you know, it just doesn't make sense, you know. These people are well, <laughs> And you get quoted on the History Channel, you know, that's sort of cool, too. And how do you explain? And and listen, that, who's who's ultimately behind all this stuff? All right, and Satan deny Satan will do anything he can to destroy the truth of the Word of God. And he'll use anybody and anything. Satan, you know, the point is Satan doesn't care what you believe, just don't believe the Bible. He doesn't care what you are, what religion you are. He could care less. Just don't believe the Bible. And that's why these guys come along and do this. I think, too, that a lot of the prominent liberal scholars, if you will, I mean, these were seeds that were planted and nurtured as a young person and encouraged, and it gets in them. Yeah. They don't just and see, they see the Bible as just another ancient literary work like Homer's Iliad or anything like that. It's just another ancient work. And, and they've got to deconstruct it. You know, and try to get rid of what obviously is a bunch of myths around it and get back to the real germ of the story. And that's what they do. But date, universally, I'm just saying universally they post-date everything. They get rid of any and all prophecies. And when they can't post-date it, then what they do is they pull their other rabbit out of the hat, which basically says somebody wrote it back into the text as though it was there. All right. In other words, at a later point, somebody inserted something back into the text. Now, the problem with that is when you look at the text of the Bible, there's no evidence of any insertions. The text flows from an original author. All right. And by the way, interesting, and I'll just give an aside here. The, the idea of Daniel here, you know, it's really not tough to prove that Daniel was written in 600 B.C. when he said it was written. About, probably written around 5, 8, probably around the 5, um, I'm trying to think here, about 536, somewhere around in there when Daniel wrote most of it. And the reason being because the language is all of from 536, the vocabulary, the language is all from that time period. Um, people say, well, they, there's some Greek words there, so obviously it had to be written during the Greek period. The 150, by the way, was the Greek period. The problem with that is the Greek words are musical instruments. All right? Now, if something was written in the Greek period, what would you expect there to be a lot of? And there isn't. It's all Hebrew. There's no Greek words. There's no Greek vocabulary being used other than the musical instruments. 
I mean, the evidence points, it's like me coming and saying, I want you to write a paper, but I want you to write it as someone would have written it in 1450. Try that one on. Try to write using the grammar and the words and the vocabulary of somebody in 1450. You probably couldn't do it. Alright? So that's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. But they have to go that way because there's prophecy in it. We can't allow there to be prophecy because then there's a supernatural God and Lord, we don't want that. So we've got to come up with some other way to explain this away. However, if you believe in the Word of God, you don't need to worry about dates at all. Why? Because God knows everything anyways. He could write it down. He knows what's going to happen in the future. Nothing's a surprise to God. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, it's fine. You just read Isaiah 40 through 48, probably one of the best passages in the Bible on the, on the character of God. And God again and again says, okay, let's bring the gods and the nations in. Let's find one of them that can foretell the future and you can go worship him. Because I'm the only one that can do that. I'm the only one that can tell the end from the beginning. I'm the only one that can tell you what's going to happen. None of the other gods in the nations can do that. In fact, you look at all the religions of the world. They don't have prophecy in them. The Bible has prophecy. Why? Because God is validating His truth. And if you look at the other religions, you'll find probably Christianity in there. Yeah. You know, you look at the preponderance of the Bible. It's prophetic in nature. A tremendous amount of it. Why is that? God's trying to make a point. I can tell the future. If I can tell the future, if I can tell you what's going to happen ten years from now, I can probably tell you what's going to happen a hundred years from now. And if everything has come true so far, what do you think about all the rest of the book? That's what God is trying to tell us. And by the way, when they look at the, 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 the supposed... This is interesting. When you go back many years and look at things, like for example, they say, Moses couldn't have written um, the Pentateuch because the, the legal code, the, the Israelite legal code was way too advanced for you know, those primitive people. Then they dig up the code of Hammurabi. And it's even more complex than what you got in Genesis. And he dates from the time of Genesis. So again, again, you know, every time they open their mouth and talk about, you know, it couldn't happen here, it couldn't happen there, somebody digs something up and they're just shown to be fools. Um, I'm going to skip the graph wellhausen theory. And I'm going to go right down to the multiple source theory. I'm going to go through this. You can read this on your own. Because um, really I think the, um, the second one here is much more important. Going right through these slides pretty fast, right? There you go. The synoptic problem. They like to write on this. You know, they, they write books on this. And I've got a bunch of books at home written by the liberal scholars on the supposed synoptic problem. And... The problem is this. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke appear very similar in subject matter and the overall general outline of Christ's life, right? Um, it's which ways in there? Got it? Alright. Takes a while to get through all the other stuff. Um, and basically what it does is you look at the general outline. It starts usually with Christ's baptism, His Galilean ministry, and His latter... Judean ministry. But it's a, and then the crucifixion, of course. We have that in there as part of the latter Judean ministry. But it's basically the same, the same general outline of Christ's life, the same general events. 
John, however, is totally different. John focuses on the last six months and particularly the last week, basically, of Christ's life. Um, the bulk of John is given over to that. Um, Mark has a 93% agreement with Matthew and Luke. In other words, when you look at the Gospel of Mark, 93% of what is in the Gospel of Mark you'll also find in Matthew and or Luke. John is 92% different than all of them. In other words, 92% of the stuff in John is not in the other Gospels at all. Only 8% is. So the question they come up with is how can Matthew, Mark, and Luke be so similar it's so different. I mean, they're, they're, they're similar, but they're different. There are some differences between them. And when you look at this little chart here, you see the, the, how it breaks down, actually. What it's saying here for Matthew is he's got 280 verses that are his alone. 170 that are common to him and Luke. 120 common to him and Mark. And 480 that are common to all of them. That's how you read that. Luke has 500 unique verses. Mark has 50 unique verses. So, in the whole Gospel of Mark, there's only 50 verses in Mark that only Mark has. Everything else in Mark, 120, 480, and 20, are found somewhere in one of the other Gospels. Alright? So, the, you know, they, the eggheads get together and say, well, how can this be? You know, how can we have this similarity yet difference? You know, what, what can that come up with? So, they come up with these different theories. Theory number one is a common original. In other words, there was an original common book that we no longer have. We don't know where it is. It, there's no copy, by the way, of this thing anywhere. There's no manuscript that it is in. It's a fictitious book, a fictitious thing. But it was an original, original gospel. And then Mark copied from it and added a few things. And Luke copied from it and added a few things. And Matthew copied from it and added a few things. But there's a common original book that's those 480 verses that are common to all of them. That's what they came up with. That's Q. That, well, it's, that's not Q. That's just a, a, an original. Q is just a compile of sayings of Jesus, different little sayings he did. What are the problems with this? Well, there's a lot of problems with this. There's no historical support. There, there's, not, there's nothing mentioned in church history about any common original gospel. Common to all of them. The church fathers don't write about this, and where do they go to? They go right up to the disciples. They don't mention anything about this. There's no, there's no mention anywhere in church history that this book ever existed.